Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. First up this week, the Pope has abolished the pontifical secret for abuse cases. We'll talk about what this new transparency measure means. Then, we'll talk about the Pope's Peter's Pence Fund, and whether the Vatican is misleading donors, as a popular article alleged last week. Finally, the Pope spent his 50th anniversary as a priest shining a light on his spiritual director. We'll talk about who that is and what impact he's had on the Pope. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from snowy New York, Jerry. Good afternoon from a cloudy Rome, which threatens rain. The temperature is 13, 14, so not too bad. All right, Jerry, let's jump into today's big story that just broke a few hours ago. This morning, this is December 17th, we're recording this episode, Pope Francis just officially abolished the use of the pontifical secret in cases of sexual abuse of a minor or vulnerable person by clergy. So the pontifical secret was this practice that kept Vatican judicial proceedings around abuse cases secret, and abuse survivor advocates have been calling for its abolition for years. Uh, Now, there's a line between transparency and protecting the privacy of survivors and even the people being investigated. So, Jerry, the first thing I'm wondering is, how is the Vatican supposed to walk that line practically under these new laws? Every government, and the Vatican is, is a government as well, has secrecy or classified information. You have it in the United States, it is in Britain and Australia, wherever, whichever country you go. There is information that is not uh, meant to be put in the public domain. The Vatican has quite a bit of information that it doesn't want in the public domain. Part of that related to the cases of abuse of minors or vulnerable adults. And up to now, while the victims the survivors, the groups, the advocate groups called for the removal of the pontifical secrets, in other words, the seal of secrecy uh, under the Pope that covers these these cases. Uh, a lot of the bishops, the priests, people here in the Vatican said, no, no, we, we're putting too much out into the public domain. Sometimes the victims don't want the information out. So what kind of information would be out now? Well, now on a case, take you say one single abuse case, there has been uh, denunciations, there has been a trial, etc., perhaps, maybe decisions, and the survivor wants to know what's happened. Now he can legitimately, first of all, go to his diocese. And that they should be able to give him the information. If they cannot, if the information is in Rome regarding something in Rome, then they will have to go through the international channels. But uh, the information cannot be refused anymore. So this has to do with transparency for victims to know what's happening in their case that's being investigated. Does it mean that the information would be accessible to other people besides the victim? So who would that be? It could be the lawyers. I'm not sure that a newspaper can go in and ask for the information on this. But people who have the right to know can have access to the information. In other words, it will not be denied them. And secondly, there's another aspect which is not related to the secret, but is part of the law that was approved by the Pope, is that lay people can now act as advocates or defenders for survivors or even for uh, the accused. So what does that mean, like lawyers? 
yes, as qualified lay people, people who can actually deal with the with the church law. In the past, only clergy could do this. Wow. You had to be a cleric. These are big, big changes. Yeah, that's really surprising to me that that uh, provision about only clergy. I didn't know about that. Jerry, you wrote in your piece that some sources in Rome who uh, requested to remain anonymous said that Pope Francis had to overcome strong internal opposition at the Vatican before he issued this piece of legislation. But I, I don't know. To me, this seems like a really basic step towards transparency that's been asked for for a long time. Why would there be any resistance to it? Like, who who would benefit from keeping something like this in place? Well, people think that the good name of a priest in, in a parish who is accused but not convicted, uh, the people would say that he has a right of his name protected. People would say, if we put all these things in the public domain, we are opening up, uh, sh- showing the worst of ourselves. Hmm. And, and so th- there was a question over the image of the church, the protection of people, the protection of the families involved, not just the priest, but his family because he would be linked to that, the protection of the victim, the victim's families, the victim's friends, people who have given testimony, people who have covered up. There's a lot of information in there. Uh, But Pope Francis came to the conclusion that it is better to have this transparent. He, He feels that this is the only way you can deal with the question today. You've got to gain credibility, and the only way you can gain credibility is not having any cover-up, having the things accessible to those who need to be accessed. Now, what is very interesting is that Francis met a lot of opposition on this. There were people here, quite high-level positions, who said these things should be kept in-house. People's good names should be protected. People have a right not to have everything made available to the public. But Pope Francis did not agree with the resistance. We should also mention that with this morning's changes comes a redefinition of what child pornography is under Vatican law. So this now is uh, images of anyone under 18, whereas previously it had been age 14. We will continue to update you on the ongoing abuse reforms happening at the Vatican under Pope Francis here on Inside the Vatican. For our next story, last week the Wall Street Journal published a story saying that the Vatican uses more than half of the Pope's annual Peter's Pence collection to plug its own deficit, and that only 10% of the collection actually goes to the poor. Um, This caught a lot of attention, especially in the U.S., because people say that the Peter's Pence collection is billed as being for charity, not for the Vatican's operating expenses. Now, America's senior editor James T. Keene and I dug into this for an article last week, and we noticed that while the Vatican's website makes it clear what Peter's Pence is used for, the U.S. bishop's website does indeed make it sound like Peter's Pence is primarily used for philanthropy and emergency assistance. So this may come down to a case of bad communication here in the States. But Jerry, I I think that you had an even more fundamental concern about this Wall Street Journal report, which was about where these numbers came from. Can you tell me about that? We haven't had the hard figures from the Vatican. Uh, So the question is, on what is it based? I think we have to be very careful not to give people the impression that the church is misleading them, that the church is uh, being two-faced, 
saying, give us this money for the poor. Ah, now we're going to use it partly this. The implication of the article was here is a pope who's committed to the poor, and yet he's misusing the funds that are given uh, from the people. It ignores the fact that starting with Paul VI, going through John Paul II's pontificate, going through Benedict XVI's pontificate, part of the funds that were brought in collected from the people and a second part of funds which were given from the bishop's collection went partly to help the Vatican itself operate. In other words, help it to open nunciatures in different countries, that's Vatican embassies, help it to deal with some of the running expenses for which it did not have money, uh, help it also with the charitable works that it's ostensibly for. Now, to suggest that this is just happening under Pope Francis is to really throw a blind eye to history. Right. Well, and it's, I mean, I, I dug pretty far into the history for this story. It's its even farther back than, than you mentioned. It's all the way back to Pope Pius IX, like 150 years ago, who, you know, lost the papal states and had to fundraise to cover the deficit then that, that the Vatican lost all that money from. And before that, it was a medieval tradition in the Crusades. But at least for the last 150 years, the Vatican's used this money to plug its deficit. Um, I, I think this kind of leaves the average person asking, does the Vatican see a problem in this? Does Pope Francis see a problem with you know the way that they're using Peter's Pence? And if so, are they working to change it? Pope Francis, uh, since he's come in, he has, first of all, cleaned up the Vatican Bank. They have now close, I think, 15,000 accounts in the Vatican Bank to ensure that nobody is banking in the Vatican Bank, the Institute for the Works of Religion, other than for the purposes of the works of religion. So that's one thing. He's now put in one of the real top Italian prosecutors as the chief Vatican uh, judge uh, who knows a lot about money laundering and everything. Thirdly, he's also appointed a, a, an auditor general. And fourthly, he's now appointed a new head of the Vatican's economy secretariat, a ministry for the economy, if you wish, whose task is to ensure that the money is being used and used well and not for other purposes. Now, the Pope has, has a, there's a problem because you have a Vatican budget. You have almost 3,000 employees. They have to get paid. They have their pensions for past people. This has to be guaranteed. And so it's a very delicate operation. And the, the money is not a lot, and especially at times when the abuse question, the question of the credibility of the church over the abuse, has impacted negatively on the giving of people to the church. But Francis, he's, he's always said, the money we get is money for the poor. And he's determined that the central offices of the church, but also the local church, uses it that way. He has said here, if you were a company, you might start uh, uh, firing people, sacking people, uh, putting people out of work. Francis said, I don't want anybody put out of work here, but we have to try to contain our budget. Right. And so, I mean, it's kind of hard in that way to gauge his success. One, because the numbers are not very transparent to us, like you like you raised at the beginning of this story, um, but also because he doesn't want to do layoffs. And so 
it's a matter of trying to consolidate offices. But if you're not cutting people from the payroll, it's hard to see what progress is being made. I know that you frame this more as being a cultural shift that he's trying to make, right, towards transparency and accountability to a budget. Yes, I, I think it is uh, far too easy to cast doubt and suspicion on what is happening in the Vatican. Uh, people are willing now because of the abuse to believe anything. And so uh, the credibility of the church is easily thrown into the into the ocean. And I think it's also happening in terms of, of the church's finance. Um, if you want to learn more about this story and what Peter's Pence is and where it goes to, um, I will link to our article on that in the show notes. And in the meantime, we will keep you updated on the ongoing reform of Vatican finances here on Inside the Vatican. On Friday, December 13th, Pope Francis celebrated a big anniversary, the 50th anniversary of his ordination to the priesthood. He had a really busy day. Uh, He celebrated Mass with 60 cardinals, and then he had a long string of meetings and events. But Jerry, I want to talk to you about the event that ended the day, uh, when the Pope went to the Jesuit headquarters to present a new collection of the writings of his spiritual mentor, Jesuit father Miguel Fiorito. So Jerry, who was Fiorito, and what did the Pope have to say about him? Well, I I was there at the meeting. There was about 250 people. Uh, Fiorito, they called him Maestro Fiorito, was uh, an Argentine Jesuit whom the Pope met in 1961 and who became his spiritual director and really influenced him very strongly. The Pope said that when uh, a young man, a young Jesuit would go to him with a problem, Father Fiorito would just listen the person would explain the problem, but Father Fioriti would never come down on either side of the of the question. He would just listen. And that was his way of mastering the conflict. That's what the Pope said. He said later we would find out what he really thought when he wrote uh, an article or something. And the same when he attended meetings of the community. He would listen. He would take notes. He would never intervene. And sometime later he would write. But this man he said, really introduced me to some of the best authors. And he mentioned the German Jesuit Hugo Rahner. He mentioned uh, Father Fessard, a French man, and, and of course, Romana Guardini, whom Francis went to study about in Germany. So Francis said, I owe a lot to him. And the second thing he said, he taught me and also his friends about discernment and spiritual paternity. Uh, But he he didn't do it just alone. He kind of created a group of uh, disciples so that the disciples would learn what the master had and the master would continue being a disciple. It's very interesting. It was a fascinating talk. It's difficult to synthesize in a few minutes for the listeners. I think what struck me most was on this day of his 50th anniversary as a priest, Francis chose to direct the attention away from himself and focused on his spiritual director. I I thought this was very striking. It reflects the humility of the man, the low profile that he always takes. He he doesn't want to put himself in the the high position. He's raised up his spiritual director about which practically nobody knew very much, and suddenly put him center stage, not himself. 
Yeah, reading your article um, summarizing this talk, which I will link to for our listeners in the show notes, um, it was really clear how Francis has taken Fiorito's like leadership and discernment style and kind of made it his own, right? I was thinking that in terms of what you're saying about listening. Um, so if our listeners want to read your write-up of Francis's talk on Maestro Fiorito, you can find that at americamagazine.org, and I will link to it in the show notes. Jerry, I think that about does it for this episode. We will have weekly episodes throughout the holidays, so our listeners can stay tuned for those updates here on Inside the Vatican. I will chat with you next week. Thank you, Colleen. Always good to chat with you. Look forward to our next uh, episode. All right. See you then. Inside the Vatican is produced by America Media at our William J. Lowshirt studio in New York City. This episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Tucker Redding. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. Our studio manager is J.R. Kronheim. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next week.